0: writing a novel... Is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I will also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, well, I don't know what you listened to last time. I'm recording this in early December of 2020 to release at an undetermined point in my future, which is now your present. True story. Anyway, we're trying something new today. See, this is like an interview in that I have a guest who I'll introduce in a second, but I won't be quizzing them about themselves, their writing career, and perhaps some specific field of literary knowledge. Not for most of the time anyway. Today you'll be listening in as I do one of my favorite things in the world, which is discussing someone's work in progress with them, consulting them on how they can further develop the story so as to achieve their goals with it, whether that's just to complete a satisfying first draft, or get it as polished as can be for final publication. Nathaniel Webb, aka Nat20, is a main-based author of fantasy and science fiction mystery and non-fiction. He is also a musician, game designer, and software developer. His novels include the geek mystery A Conventional Murder. The Game Lit Adventure, Expedition Summerlands from Level Up Publishing, and The Veil of Worlds Urban Fantasy Trilogy from Vulpine Press. His music biography, Marillion in the 1980s, was a bestseller for Sonic Bond Publishing. He has also sold short stories and novellas in such subgenres as lit RPG and steampunk. I think I can get away with saying Nathaniel is a fan of sword and sorcery. In fact, he has an S&S short story published in issue number four of Whetstone magazine. I'll link to that in the show notes. It's free to read. Today, I'll be consulting him on a new sword and sorcery story, work in progress of his. He's got about 1,100 words written, and its holding title is the main character's name, Flew, spelled F-L-U-E. Because *Flu* is at the stage of being an incomplete first draft, it's basically as easy for me to read it to you than to summarize it. So, with Nathaniel's permission, of course, I'm now going to read it to you, and that will be followed by my discussion with Nathaniel. If you'd rather just skip ahead to the conversation we had about the story, then you'll want to skip to about 10 minutes and 35 seconds. Alright. *Flu*, Incomplete first draft. As of December 13th, 2021. In the city of Lorden, on the Street of Wonders, flew Montan attempted to buy a rat. There was a man with a stall. He had sharp, beady eyes and a shirt that was bluer than anything Flew had seen in months. The stall comprised three sunken pens in which rats wriggled and slid over each other. Flew moved from one to the next, contemplating the animals. Other customers came and went. They handed over their coin and grabbed any old rat like it didn't even matter. Break its neck for you? said the rat jack. It was like a mantra. Break its neck? No? Taking it home? Break its neck for you? No charge. Some accepted, others broke the necks themselves, and while mostly they stuffed their fresh slain merchandise into sacks and pouches as they strode away, some of them dug in right there on the street. Flew considered the squirming rats. They were mostly a drab, disappointing grey, like Flew herself. She'd chopped her brown hair as short as she could with a dagger, but it was still matted from weeks of sleeping in alleys. Her clothes were stained and too large. Hunger had kindled an unfamiliar gleam in her gray eyes. She dug through the pens, curious to see the rats buried under their kin. Now and then, one distinguished itself with an appealing pattern, a sable streak, a white ruff, a banded tail. Finding each standout sent a tiny thrill of satisfaction to her dull heart. But she couldn't stand here forever, not without the Rat Jack growing suspicious. Eventually, she narrowed the candidates down to two. One was larger than average more a shimmering silver than base gray the other was small and long-nosed all white with an agouti hood she nodded to herself snaked a hand into the pile and seized the big one gently her other hand pulled a small gleaming rook from within her jacket there were two cardinal distinctions between Flew and the other customers first she didn't intend to eat her rat Second, she didn't intend to pay for it. When the torchlight playing over the rook's golden edge caught the ratjack's eye, she said, I'd like this one, please. Avarice made his eyes flash as brightly as Flew's coin, then Doubt clouded those eyes and they narrowed. How's a little dell like you come by such a thing? Flew set the rook on the stall with the flat of her palm. Don't flash it around town and you'll never need wonder. Likely the Rat Jack suspected she'd cribbed it from some nabob up in the wealthy neighbourhoods of Norwood, where folk had money in abundance, or at least they had money. Full stop. This was a good guess, correct in all but the particulars. Disdaining to leg it all the way to Norwood just to cut a purse, Flew had stolen the Rook closer to home. Regardless, it was possible enough that the Rook's previous owner might come looking for it that the Rat Jack would be wise not to make a scene. It had been a stroke of uncommon good luck, pinching that Rook, the first in a long and hungry time. With a little ingenuity, the thing could earn its value a hundred times over. Starting with buying a rat. The Rat Jack snorted in acquiescence. His sharp eyes stayed fixed on Flew's while his hand dove into his pouch for the change. Flew's hand was busy too. While she stared the Rat Jack's challenge back at him, her palm was working subtly but quickly. The Rook slipped into her sleeve. In its place dropped a brass pawn, carefully polished to a gleam and nearly indistinguishable from the Rook in the poor purple light of evening. The Rat Jack slapped her change down on the stall, Flew shoved the pawn across the splintered wood and he palmed it without looking. She took her change, nine priest and four, shook her new pet gently at the Jack, and said, Thanks! He gave her a gap tooth smile that suggested she'd find less than correct change in her hand. Break his neck for ya? The Street of Wonders was a bright tangled thread of red, blue, and gold running north-south along the Isle of Lorden, which lay humped to thwart the river gaunt like an inconsiderate cat. The Rat Jack stall occupied a space at the street's southern end, near the Iron Bridge that separated the isle from Beast's Landing. So close to the dangerous south shore of the gaunt, it was mostly quick-stitch joints and blessings on the cheap, but even mercenaries needed to eat. Five blocks up the Street of Wonders, Flew changed her mind. Certainly the rat she'd bought had a certain charm. Its silvery sheen reminded one of a rapier's blade. Or at least it had when she was buying it. Now it looked more like the belly of some dead-eyed river fish. Well, the rat's size was noble, regal even, or perhaps just corpulent. Flew stopped abruptly, causing a collision between a strutting two-sorted bravo and a scurrying milkmaid. Flew hoped they would fall in love. She pondered. To return to the ratjack now, demanding an exchange of merchandise, was the court danger. She'd gotten away with her quick-change act, her purse clumped fatly on her hip with the weight of the money the jack had unwittingly paid her to take his goods. On the other hand, the small rat's hood had been such a handsome, tawny shade, its body so elegantly slim. But risking her life on purely aesthetic motives was surely the height of foolishness. Flew sighed. Her motives had always been purely aesthetic, at least until things went south, and her life became a grim struggle against starvation. She turned and made her way back down the Street of Wonders. The lunch rush had cleared from around the rat stall, leaving the Jack to reckon his take in relative solitude— He sighed contentedly and tipped the contents of his money pouch onto the counter of the stall. Flew hesitated. If he'd let all his coin get jumbled up, he might not notice she'd swapped a pawn for a rook. Of course, if there were no rook in the pouch at all. The ratjack looked up. By chance his eyes met Flew's. You! He pointed a shaking finger. Come here, you brazen little shit! Guards! Flew snorted. The City Watch never came to the Isle of and ten years ago, maybe, but now... A heavy hand clomped down on her shoulder. Got her, boss. Flew looked up, the big man's male coif and the scar-checkered face glaring within it described a life in private security. Of course. Flew stomped on the arch of his foot, screamed, KIDNAPPER! Threw her rat at him, and ran. Donovan Valentine, the diabolist who'd rebuilt Flew's face, kept a shop on Loom Street, across from the 2 palm little theatre where attractive people performed the classical dramas in more revealing costumes than historical accuracy required. Flew had chosen Valentine for this proximity. If he ever threatened her, she could rabbit for the stage door and rely on the actress to hide her. She'd slept enough cold nights outside the stage door that she knew them all. There were two reasons Donovan Valentine might threaten Flew. First, she owed him a huge amount of money. Second, he knew who she really was. Nor was it strictly true that she'd chosen Valentine purely by location. He knew who Flew was because he'd known her mother before she was murdered. He wouldn't help her out of charity, no, Diabolist worked for free, but he was willing to extend her credit. Flew touched the purse at her hip. No matter how many times she ran the numbers, they didn't change. The money she'd scammed from the Rat Jack would cover about a quarter of last month's payment, assuming she kept none for herself. But was it better to make that paltry payment now with the promise of more to come? Or would Valentine prefer the full month of back pay all at once, a few days from now? I expect, said a voice at Flew's shoulder, he would prefer last month's and this month's together immediately. All right, let's go chat with Nathaniel. And here we are with Nat. Hey, Nat. Hey, how's it going, Oliver? Not too bad. Uh, We just blew 20 minutes talking about stuff that could have been really fun for the recording. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) let's hope we got more for this. Uh, We haven't run out of interesting things to say. So why don't we just warm up a little bit with you telling me what was the last sword and sorcery short story you really enjoyed reading and why? Like just the most recent. Don't worry about leaving people out.
1: If I have to pick one, and it has to be recent and it has to be short story, I think I am going to go with "Cold in Blood" by James Ang, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his last name right, but um, I think
0: Andy? I, I, I no, yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I, I I would swear I heard somebody say it that way on some something, but anyway, um, it's yeah. in the most recent issue of Tales from the Magician's Skull. It's one of his Morlock Ambrosius stories, and uh, I, you know, I came into it; it was the first issue of the Skull I had read. It was the first of his stories I'd read. It was the first Morlock story, blah, blah, blah. But um, so came into it knowing absolutely nothing. And man, I was just blown away by this story. Like it's not sword and sorcery in the, you know, Conan climbing a tower and killing monsters with a sword sense at all. It's very voicey if if you know that term in modern publishing like the this character morlock has a very sort of uh, almost modern feeling but very kind of um, acerbic and darkly observational voice and Mm. the story is basically like it's fantasy new year's eve and he just wants to get really drunk and instead he has to deal with this vampire and you know in the end like he he kills a monster but he didn't want to be there and he kind of does the whole thing with this sense of ennui um, and it was just it was very different um, in a way that I think a lesser writer it would have been just an absolutely dreadful mess but it it just really worked I was just completely amazed by it you know I came into it with no expectations and came out of it saying like wow this dude can write so that's my recommendation cold and blood
0: oh cool yeah I've read that one too actually I really liked it uh, it wasn't my first Morlock Ambrosius that was probably I think there was a story uh, with that character in issue three that was the first tales uh, of the Magician Skull that I read. But yeah, I've read everything except for the incredibly difficult to find issue two.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, so I feel relatively up to date on at least the, the the tales stories of Warlock and yeah, I would recommend them as well, including that particular story, which if you're not someone like me who has trouble reading too much on screens, you can find issue two as a PDF. So listener, if you want to get the whole set, you can, as long as you're cool with doing it digital or finding a very generous person uh, <laughs> to <be> pop <part laughs> issue number two from. Uh, or taking yeah.
1: a second mortgage in your house.
0: Yeah, yeah, that shipping. Uh, I, I had someone who wanted to, you know, was willing to sell me the copy at cost. And I was like, awesome. And, oh, was, man. and then the shipping from the States to Canada was unbelievable. Let's just put it that way. <sighs> anyway, um, but yeah, so, okay, okay, cool. Good, good choice, I would say. Not there was a wrong choice. And then, yeah, is this story, flu, your only work in progress or are you juggling like a handful
1: oh my god no i i'm a work in progress slut uh absolutely (laughs) i mean i've got um you know it's partially maybe a lack of focus um but uh i'm working on this i've got a second um Faragher drowning bell story um, that I've written but needs uh, a lot of polishing um, that I'm hoping to submit whenever uh, the next issue of Whetstone comes out or whenever. Right. They so, for anyone open. who's listening
0: who doesn't know that that is your character in the most recent issue of Whetstone. Yep.
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I've already written a second story with her um, that needs some work, but uh, you know it's it's there and pretty much ready to pull the trigger uh, whenever the next issue of Whetstone is underway. Um, so I've got that. And then a couple fragmentary novels. Um, you know, I, th- I think I mentioned when we were sort of doing the run-up to this that um, the-, the pandemic on We hit me pretty hard. And it's funny because I don't leave my house very much anyway. <laughs> but for some reason, having that option taken away is very different from choosing not to leave your house. And so you know it's the last couple of years have been um, a little challenging in terms of uh, focus and energy and all that stuff as I have been for everybody, I think.
0: Yeah, you're not alone. I mean, recently, that has just changed for me until, you know, basically this coming week, uh, I have been working from home the whole pandemic. And similarly, I was like, well, my routine is actually not terribly disrupted. (laughs) (laughs) But but even so, like, yeah, you have the option taken away.
1: (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, I've got the the starts of a few novels and some are better than others, I think. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'm, I'm always and I like to jump between projects, you know, and you get jazzed about one thing and you work on that for a while. And then when you start feeling a little burnt out about that, then you have something else you can move to for a little while. And, you know, that kind of keeps me going.
0: I hear you on the Pandemic Slum, so hopefully this discussion will give you a bit of a boost, uh, yes. you know, for working on this story. And actually, yeah, coming back to something in our messaging over the Wetstorm Tavern Discord running up to this, you said, if I can quote you here, um, I'm in a weird spot where I've written a few novels but I'm just starting to take short story writing seriously and it's harder than expected yeah I'm curious what specifically are you finding harder than you expected oh
1: well they're just so short aren't
0: they're <laughs> <laughs> uh, <you're> the name <laughs>
1: yeah somebody should have warned me um <laughs> yeah no I mean in, in a novel you know I when I when I write um I tend to write with a word count, goal in mind. Um, and that helps me kind of structure and plan and everything, you know, but with a novel, even if you're writing a shorter novel, there's still just a ton of space to stretch out and explore ideas and, you know, give your characters room to talk to each other and think to themselves and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, not every scene needs to strictly drive the plot forward, blah, 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 blah. And when you take that freedom away and you cut it down to six, 7,000 words, or even, you know, Whetstone has a hard limit of 2,500 words. I mean, my God, the amount of work that I put into that first story that they that they accepted, it would have been easier to write it five thousand words, and the the work to cut it down to twenty five hundred, but still keep all the character moments that I wanted, keep the themes that I wanted, keep all the action that I wanted, um, and just make it so dense with all that stuff, you know. It, and it was I learned a lot from doing it, but it was very challenging.
0: Yeah, no, I, I sympathize with all of that. I've been lucky in that screenwriting has actually weirdly prepared me for short stories in the one sense that. With screenwriting, everything you put on the page is going to cost money. (laughs) <laughs> right. And yeah. so, you know, you it you, is encouraged to, uh, I mean, the first draft is the first draft, right? But by the time you get to the kind of thing that's going to actually get shot or maybe that you're going to submit around to agents and, and try and pitch and so on. Yeah. Like, can you take these three locations and crunch them down to one, yep. <laughs> so there's like, yep. you know, stuff like that. And, and obviously special effects and other more obvious things like that, you know, can these two characters become one character or can we get rid of this dog and just have a picture of a dog? Yeah. Uh, you know, and so uh, in, in that You've vein, just ruined John Wick. I'm sorry. <laughs> he lit my picture of a dog on fire. It's, uh, it's not, not very motivating. I don't care. You know, he just goes and starts a bakery. But yeah. so <laughs> and so with short stories, I am finding like that the skills I developed with uh, screenwriting to crunch, 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 crunch stuff down and really be like, what do I need? Or how can I get mm-hmm. a character beat in like a glance because I don't have room for a monologue it has been very helpful. I'm not saying it's made it easy, but it's been helpful. And so hopefully, uh, you know, I can help you out here with some of what we're dealing with today. But before we get to the specific concerns you had about this story, uh, actually, we just about danced over it here. Do you have a word count in mind for this story?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I'm shooting for 6,000 words. And what I'm finding as I write short stories is that if I shoot for 6,000, it'll come out somewhere around 7,000.
0: Yep. I've just done that myself. I was aiming for six, and so I got about seven point two or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, and, and that's still sort of, I think, in the safe zone where most markets, especially sword and sorcery markets, they're looking for something right around that six, seven thousand word mark. uh You know, a little bit on either side. Again, whetstone obviously accepted. So you know, if, if it goes over, it goes over. But uh, yeah, that's that's the goal. Well,
0: that's interesting because I know it tails does six whetstone. Mm-hmm. You know, the short end, as we just said. Most places I've seen, not that I've seen all places, uh, I find they cap around five. So that's actually my goal for oh, this I'm working on. Interesting. Uh, so it might be interesting to compare lists uh, when we're not recording because that would be very boring for <laughs> other people <laughs> listening yes. <on>. But uh, <laughs> the yeah, it is interesting. To, yeah, like it is interesting to try and find like a market average for the genre you're submitting yeah. I'd be like, okay, I should aim for this-ish. Of course, you always have different drafts, but uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, that would be too much like job hunting where you have to do a specific CV for each role uh, to have the better chance of getting in and having a specific edit for each market. I guess if I had the time and energy, you know, but we'll- Yeah,
1: you know, and I I thought about that because I finished this Farager Drowning Bell story, the second one that I'm going to submit to Whetstone Eventually, um, you know, and it's right at 2,500 words. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, there's enough going on here that maybe I could expand it to 5,000 and, you know, send that around to other places. And then I just thought, you know, I don't think that works for this character in the sense that she came to life as a whetstone story. And there's sort of a, there's such a density to the way that you have to tell a story that's that short mm-hmm. that actually really kind of informed the character and, and made her something different from what i expected you know i thought she was going to be a lot chattier for example and there's
0: just wasn't <laughs> a space
1: for that um but yeah, now she got to,
0: got to cut that monologue yeah. exactly
1: and now she talks with her sword very much more than i anticipated but uh you know the the form informs the story and the story informs the form and it's you know all of a piece i guess
0: oh exactly like i have just barely because i have another thing i that, that 7.2 guy i want to get that of it further along before i really dig into it but i'm starting something for whetstone and right away i was like okay i got 1.5 to 2.5 k here uh this will be a person who doesn't talk much and (laughs) i don't want to spoil much but i basically have like a high speed have you ever seen the anime redline no it's like a crazy bonkers sci-fi racing movie which i strongly recommend super fun you don't have to be into anime to dig it uh, there you it. go now you're speaking my language yeah and it's like a complete story so you know it's not, not a big series anyway it's super 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 fun and like it's just the pacing is bananas as you would expect in a movie about you know sci-fi crazy races yep. so like that's on my mind in part because of the as you say like the form that you're dealing with there right 2500 so in some other vein do you have a specific place or short list of places you want to submit a uh, flu
1: too. Yeah, the, well, the dream is that someday in the future, the skull will open to unsolicited submissions again. I mean, to me, you know, I, I love that magazine, and it's the high water mark of modern sword and sorcery, in my opinion. So that would be, you know, <laughs> might as well shoot for the stars. Yeah. So that would be, you know, sort of bucket list achievement. But you know, th- there are, and we should compare notes after, uh, a lot of places, actually, if you start really digging, that will at least consider sword and sorcery stories. There are other places that kind of explicitly look for them. Heroic Fantasy Quarterly, there's another one that I'm blanking on the name of at the moment, but there there are a few markets for it. Explicitly mm-hmm. where I think the story could work. So yeah, I think it'll it'll come down to who's accepting submissions and you know, hopefully somebody will like it.
0: Well, you know what it just maybe think would be really useful for anyone listening? We could build our little list together because I'm happy to like let's compare notes, right? Let's share our yeah. respective lists. And then if you're cool with it, maybe we could share that list in the show notes for the episode. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know,
1: to pay it forward. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Cool.
0: All right. So, okay. listener, if, if you're thinking yourself about wanting to sell a short sorcery short story, check out the show notes where there should be like probably a couple dozen links, I think at least. Now, speaking of which, are you, it sounds like the answer is yes, but are you hell bent on this story being sword and sorcery? If so, roughly, how are you defining that? Like what is sword and sorcery to you?
1: Yeah, so so what's interesting to me is trying to combine genres and do something that's not, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be so uh, hubristic as to say that's never been done before, but do something that's a, a little different from what you'd necessarily expect if you hear sword and sorcery short story, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a heist story, but it's also a sword and sorcery story. And so what, what that means to me is, you know, very much inspired by the Tower of the Elephant, the famous Robert E. Howard Cohen. Conan story where, you know, he is breaking into this tower thinking he's going to steal a bunch of jewels and be a very rich man. And he said he finds a mournful ancient alien god who begs Conan to kill him and take his heart. (laughs) 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 So it's not going to be quite on that scale. But that's that's sort of the inspirational template here that, you know, flu is going to take on a job to steal a magic sword from a mercenary company, and then discover that there is more going on when she gets in there, not to the extent of ancient alien gods, but that there's, you know, it's not so simple a job as she expected. And I think that that is in keeping with the sword and sorcery tradition right you go into the tower or the dungeon or the castle or whatever and then it turns out that there is magic there and it's dark and it's sinister and it's not what you were expecting to find but i think it's also in keeping with with the heist story tradition you know that it's always the the most fun heist stories are when things go wrong and the hero or the team has to improvise and deal with the unexpected so that's kind of the spin i'm putting on it
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, the three table legs of any high story is the crew, whether it's one person or an Ocean's Eleven situation, right? the plan and the complications. Exactly. Exactly. Like if everything goes smoothly and it just goes, it's over, like, who cares? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I I guess that's true of any story. And then everything went fine. The end Uh, is never...
1: uh, (laughs) Although they say say with a heist movie, if they tell you the plan ahead of time, then you know that things are going to go wrong. If they don't tell you the plan ahead of time, then things are going to go more or less according to plan. And the fun is seeing what the plan was all along. Um, And if you watch it, usually they'll follow either one or the other of those templates. But this one, the plan is not complicated complicated until flu gets in there and then it gets complicated okay okay
0: and honestly I would say like a heist that can be very sort of sorcery I forget who it was I think it was Ashiguru on the uh, Whetstone Tavern Discord said recently uh, we were talking about Howard quite a bit because there was someone who had just read one story and was like I want to get into Conan and we were all like well you came to the right (laughs) place here's seven or eight people at a time just like deluging you with recommendations (laughs) but uh, well meaning but oh my god I was one of them so who you know point being uh, he pointed out that one thing that's very easy to forget and heck even I forget sometimes I'm like studying the heck out of it thinking about it really hard not only for my novel but for presenting it in the podcast, Conan did a lot more than chop up dudes and like lead bandit parties and stuff. Yeah, right. Like yeah. there were, you know, one of the really fun things was sticking him in other kinds of stories, including but not limited to like murder mysteries, pirate stories, and heist stories. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's absolutely SNS. And it's interesting to hear you mention that story. Uh, and of course, there's no wrong influence to be thinking of. I was thinking a lot of good old Fafnir and Great Mouser. Maybe that's because I'm really deep in that at the moment with what I'm outlining in my book. Yeah. But definitely some of the stuff that you wrote here just kind of felt like I was, you know, we were hanging out in like an, a, a Lankmar-esque setup.
1: Yeah, and that's, um, you know, I, I would be lying through my teeth if I denied that being a huge influence. Um, and I would say probably the other specific story that I would name check here is The Two Best Thieves in Lankmar, mm. which is one of my favorite of the Fafford and Grey Mauser stories. It's it's sort of almost a throwaway one. It's short and it's kind of goofy, but it is actually written like a heist story because mm. you've got Fafford and the Grey Mauser. They're not exactly in a fight in the way they are in Lean Times and Mar, but they're in a bit of a tiff because they've been traveling together for too long and they need some space. They've got these jewels that they need to sell, but the jewels are invisible. And yeah. so each of them individually has come up with a scheme of how he is going to sell these invis- invisible jewels without the fence that they're selling to figuring out that they're invisible and then they both get scammed in different ways uh (laughs) and and so the story you know it's it starts with sort of the quote unquote heist aspect of the clever plan that each of them has to unload these goods um then it turns into the again this the heist kind of of how they were actually hoodwinked by the people they were selling to so that was the other big inspiration that made me think like gosh this actually could really work like fantasy heist i kind of i kind of love it
0: oh absolutely yeah I actually, that's one of my favorites too. And I also like the fact that it was written just as like part of the uh, later stitch up he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was trying to make all this stuff fit into one big saga. And so yeah, it's very much like a between adventures adventure and yet yeah, so good. Do you have, for Flew here, do you have an outline? Or are you figuring this story out as you write the first draft? I've got an
1: outline. Um, I'm a hardcore, hardcore outliner. I can never do it otherwise. That's what gets me past the, uh, you know, staring at a blank page, not knowing what to write is working from an outline. And before that, doing brainstorming, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I've I've got it plotted out. The outline, things will always change when I'm actually writing it. Usually what will happen is I'll find connections that I didn't see before when I'm just outlining it. Ideally, what happens is the characters kind of take on lives of their own, as writers love to talk about. Um, and that will suggest things that I didn't see when I was just thinking about the plot. But yes, I, I know it's gonna happen.
0: Okay, cool. And last thing before we get sort of into discussing uh, the concerns you had that you wanted us to get into, what was the singular idea, image theme, you know, the thing that first seized you and sent you down the path of writing this story?
1: You know, I think it was probably reading The Two Best Thieves in Lankmar and thinking, I want more stories like this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if you can't find them, you got to write them, right? You know, I'd possibly even the conversation that we were having on the Discord a while back where you had picked up the Alex stories by Joanna Russ. Yeah. Because, of course, she she makes a small and somewhat confusing cameo in Two Best Thieves in Lankmar where she's called Alex the Picklock. And I just immediately thought, like, that's such a great name and I want to read... All these stories about alex the picklock and Lankmar like scamming dudes and getting rich and then unfortunately you then informed me that that's not really what joanna russ's actual stories are
0: no i mean the first three are, are do via like sword and sorcery but mm. they are not doing that she, she was yeah. not writing uh, i mean even though she's a thief and she does do a bit of thieving and and, and one story in particular yeah she kind of does a lot of thievery work for a guy but even so it's like the work she's doing Anyway, whatever. We're, we're not here to discuss that book, but but yes, it's it's definitely not like what you've got here. You are you are doing some, your own thing here.
1: Yeah, and that's. I mean, it's very much write what you want to read, you know, and hopefully other people will like it. But at least I'll be satisfied.
0: Yeah, I completely understand. It varies from story to story in the novel I'm working on, but the one I'm I'm almost done. I hope to finish the outline today. Absolutely started from me reading Lean Times and Lake and yeah. being like, I want to do a lean times and landmark. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I say it in a dumb voice because I, I like making fun of myself. But I think it's a very <laughs> legit motivation to do something, just so long as you're like chasing kind of a vibe and and wanting to do your own expression, as opposed to, uh, you know, here is a formula. I will, you know, break it down like a blueprint and then just copy that blueprint, but with my own names and places. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I don't get that feeling here. All of your stuff. Just you know, a little warning for everybody, myself included. Sometimes. So. Okay. Let's get into the story here. Your main concern as you worded it to me in an email was quote, the thing I'm most struggling with right now is managing backstory. Both the protagonist and the city setting have interesting, I think, background to them. And I'd like to get that across, but I'm trying to limit myself to only what's relevant to the story being told. And then we can kind of subdivide that into the city and then the character. Yep. Now it's not been that long since you sent me that email. Do you still feel that that is something that you're wrestling with?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and this is, you know, I think every genre writer, especially fantasy and science fiction writers struggles with this because you do all this world building and then you want to show it off, but very often it is not necessary for the story and deciding how much detail to give to set the scene versus how much is just going to overload and bore the reader is uh, a very difficult knife edge to walk, I think. Um, Especially, again, in a short story where you have so much less space and you really need to grip the reader from the beginning because they're not going to give you, you know, well, it's a 400-page book, so I'll give them 20 pages to see if this gets interesting, right? I mean, if you're writing a 6,000-word short story, it's got to be interesting from the word go. So, yeah, you know... (laughs) I'm pausing here. <laughs> that's right, no, that's okay.
0: I mean, you, you can. Yeah, it sounds like a complete edit this statement. Part out, Oliver. Yeah, yeah. That's um, yeah. <laughs> no, cool. It sounds like a complete statement to me. Unless okay. there's More you wanted to say? But no, absolutely. When you have six thousand words, you don't have time to spend ten pages on the Shire. Yes. Before everybody heads off to do a thing, and conveniently, um, before recording today, I was talking to someone else about their historical fiction story set in 1860s in a part of England that they know very well from when they were young, and. So the you know I think even if it's not genre stuff like it can be the world building that we make up right which almost certainly will be infused by some research whether reading other stories or reading stuff from history or you know a historical fiction story or any other story of a murder mystery a heist tale in modern day or whatever you know you do research right and when you're writing you want that research to pay off god damn it you spent hours yeah, reading exactly. that book exactly and so you know there can be this thing where I, I it's funny I've heard people say you know write to please yourself don't worry about a hypothetical audience when you write and I'm like yeah. No. Yes. No. I mean, I think that <laughs> that's a piece of advice where it's like, yeah, it applies if it, in some in some specific cases and doesn't in others. Uh, you know, the specific case of like trying to write to please someone else. Overall, yeah, that's not a good idea because you won't have the passion for the story. Write the thing you're passionate about. Please yourself that way. But when it comes to world building, whether it's you know, whole cloth fantasy, sci-fi, whatever creations from your head, or research, or a fusion of the two, you kind of need to think about the audience. Because the, everything you put on the page, you're asking them to read it. And is the payoff enough to justify the ask? And this is kind of what we got into chatting before we got into here. I won't be mean to name the book. I'm reading a book right now. I don't even have it on my Goodreads to, for the history because I, I think I don't like it. <laughs> I don't want to, be mean to have it and have it up there, you know, as a record of that thing I didn't finish because I didn't like it. But Yeah, in that one, it's a big door wedge, which, you know, sometimes I'm fine with. I've read uh, Tim Hellick's The Religion earlier this year. That's a big door wedge, loved it. But this door wedge is asking, I'm starting to feel anyway, uh, too much of me because of the extreme level of detail about this character. As they sort of go from someone who knows nothing to gradually knowing more and more, which I've only learned in the last week. And there's a term for this progression lit. News to me. As I say, I'm, I'm mostly trained in screenwriting. So now I find like I'm, I'm catching up on the subgenres and stuff. Like a guy going into a record shop 20 years ago and finding out all like the subgenres of bands <laughs> and stuff. So, so, like, yeah, lit RP, uh, RPG lit or whatever. I had no idea what the hell Lit was. RPG. Yeah. Lit RPG. Yeah. I had no idea. Never heard of it. <laughs> so, so I'm learning all those kinds of terms and stuff on the Whetstone. But yeah, my point, come back to what we're discussing here, that book, at least I myself, and of course, this is subjective. And there's me coming in with what I like to read, what I'm looking to read today. Uh, it might not be the same as someone else's, almost certainly isn't. But I came into that book hoping for something a little more fast moving, even though I knew it wasn't going to be your sword and sorcery, like little tight tale. It's a 400 page door And I just, I'm at the end of the fourth chapter where something did start to happen again, but then it slid back into this ultra detail. And it just created a rhythm that felt kind of stop and start. It wasn't very satisfying to me. And I felt like the book was asking me to read too much to get too little reward. I'll read a big book. I'll read the biggest book. You know, I read Stephen King's The Stand, you know, unedited edition, still has coffee stains on the corner of the pages, you know, every thought he's had for that whole story. I read that. So yeah, I feel comfortable saying like, I'll read your long thing if it rewards me for the extra time and energy to read your long detailed thing. And so to come back to the story here, one of the questions I think you might want to have in the back of your head when you're reviewing the details you put in is, well, is this worth the time I'm asking the reader to read it, right? Does this detail... Give them either, does it either do uh, something utilitarian, right? Like it tells us something about the character. It tells us about uh, the world. Is it that we need to know? Does it reinforce theme? Does it do something? Or because not everything has to do something, there's room for luxury. I feel in storytelling. If it's like a pretty detail, if it's something that, you know, then even then it can be kind of doing something in a sense that it helps immerse the reader deeper, right? And that's subjective, but I find with practice, you get a feel for it. I mean, how do you feel sometimes when you're like, okay, I want to put in a detail about like, for example, there is, if I'm going to move ahead here, there was a point right bottom of the second page, you uh, broke to a paragraph basically all about, you know, the, the street of wonders was a bright tangled thread. Of red, blue, and gold, running north south along the Isle of Lorden, and it goes further, but I won't read that because uh, that's later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you kind of basically just describe a bunch of the neighborhood neighborhoods and how they connect in the city as we break between one scene and another one. So yeah, you have this paragraph describing bits and pieces of the city that the overall story is set in, and it's placed well, I think, because it's kind of between scenes, and so it gives a sensation of transit. The character that I like, but then in that sentence you go, you know, five blocks up the Street of Wonders, Flew changed her mind and then kind of turns around. To go back to where the previous scene took place Yeah, again not a, not a bad decision but it kind of made me go oh okay and kind of jerk my head around a little bit in the sense that by reading the previous paragraph where you get to the details like so close to the dangerous south shore of the gaunt it was mostly quick stitch joints and blessings on the cheap but even mercenaries needed to eat well and now you've told me a bit about where the story is going i have a better idea oh mercenaries okay that's going to come in later because of stealing the sword right but as someone reading this having no clue i was like oh is Flua a mercenary like even she needs to eat is, is, she, is she in gaunt now And of course I got corrected by the next sentence, but it was this feeling of like, okay, well then why did I read that previous thing? Except for to just kind of get like a city map in my mind that sort of got folded up immediately. And then the character is basically almost immediately going right back to where they were. Do you see what I mean?
1: I do absolutely. And I'm glad that you picked out that particular paragraph because before sending you this draft, that paragraph got moved. And it Um. was originally much closer to the beginning in the first scene where she's at the this, you know, rat stall looking at the rats. And then I thought, well, gosh, I better try to set the scene a little bit. So you know, because they always talk about you don't want your characters just in a blank white room, right? So you want to show some sense of space and situation to what's going on. And so I thought, gosh, I better set the scene. And maybe I could like slyly work in a little of backstory and world building and stuff here. And so I I put it there a couple paragraphs in. And then as I was reading through it, prior to sending it to you the other day, I hit that paragraph and realized like, wow, this just feels like I dropped it right in, like it just did not flow <laughs> at all. And so I thought, okay, where where could this actually go? And I realized, well, after the section break, when she, you know, because the idea is at that point, she's gotten this rat, and she is walking back up the Street of Wonders. And so I thought, mm-hmm. well, that is a would make sense as a place to put a description to the Street of Wonders. No. But I do think that part of maybe what you're reacting to is that I, you know, I literally just did like a cut and paste and, and dropped it in there. So this bit about mercenaries needing to eat, well, it's a, it's a reference to the fact that this rat seller, you know, people are buying them to eat them, right, which right. flute is not. So that <laughs> that's why that's there. But yeah, I mean, when you read it out like that, I could definitely see it doesn't seem to follow necessarily. It's, it seems a little jarring, like, wait, mercenaries have to eat, but then we're just back on something else.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. I see that, how that happened. Yeah. That happens to be sometimes too when I'm editing, or even I'll get like a sentence fragment because I changed my mind halfway through uh, cutting a sentence and then I come back and oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's it, it needs to be integrated a little better. Yeah. And, and I was also trying to start to introduce this idea of the mercenaries. And again, I mean, originally this paragraph was much longer and it had a bunch of backstory about the city and what the situation is. And like, you know, so on the Isle of Lorden, a bunch of mercenaries live there because on the south shore of the river connected by the Iron Bridge, there's all these monsters and they come over the bridge. And so basically the island in the middle is now just only mercenaries and adventurers live there because they're constantly under attack. And all that stuff was in there. But then that's the question of like, okay, cool, like fun world building or whatever but we don't need to know that at this point in the story certainly possibly not really even at all for the whole story depending on how it shakes out yeah Um, so i cut that okay yeah so you're seeing surgical scars here really (laughs)
0: that's a good way of putting it yeah i um okay so i say right now i agree with your choice to remove that paragraph because if i just go from the end of the previous scene to five blocks up the street of wonders flu changed her mind Yeah, you you wouldn't need to do much to make that still work by removing that paragraph. So I think, yeah, that's a good choice. And I'm also glad that, at least in what I read here, it's not the opening to the story. I think as a first sentence goes, in the city of Lourdes, on the street of wonders, Flumontaine attempted to buy a rat. Like, great. <laughs> you know, yeah, like I like you, that one. I was happy yeah. when I came up with that. Yeah, yeah, you, you got my attention because it's like, okay, we're in a city, All right. Oh, Street of Wonders, all right, cool, cool. I don't know any, what any of this means, but they're fun names. I mean, don't know anything. Yeah, that was a criticism, of course. And then, oh, we got the character name. Great, no wasting time there. And what are they doing? Oh, they're trying to buy a rat. That's interesting. Why would you want to buy a rat? I'm going to keep reading. So yeah, no, I think that's a good first sentence, and I'm glad it's not opening with the Street of Wonders as a bright tangle thread of red, blue, and gold, etc. Now, I again, this you know, this is all subjective taste. At the end of the day, if you want to create more of a wondrous, like the city is the character. Maybe you would open with that paragraph or something like it. But it's a short story, as we're saying here. And sword and sorcery tends to be more rooted on the person than the place, I find.
1: Yeah. So I think... Yeah, although although interestingly, I mean, we were talking about Tower of the Elephant earlier. You know, that opens with the the long description of the mall and it's sort of it's very cinematic right it's sort of mm. you see the neighborhood level first and then it slowly zooms in and you're kind of seeing incidental background characters you know bribing guards with stained coin and all that stuff and then you get to one tavern and then in the tavern are a couple different people are introduced and then you know the uh, the slaver the kidnapper right you know, all, all these eventually... wretched people gosh what a yeah. of high,
0: uh, hive of uh, you know villainy or whatever yeah,
1: yeah uh, <laughs> wretched hive of scum and villainy Thank Right. You. yeah Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, and then and then Conan kills them all. (laughs) One page later. Um, Yeah, but yeah, you know, and I really like that introduction. But, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm not Robert E. Howard, and I'm not just gonna ape what he did. And yeah, and to me, starting with a character who's doing something is always going to be a start, a stronger start.
0: Yeah, I, I honestly, yeah, now, now you've said that, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I guess it could go either way. I mean, the big thing is, right, we would want it to kind of, you know, the camera to go down, 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 and then finally, like, settle on essentially a close-up of flu, right? Yes. Uh, whereas of course this paragraph uh, where it was when in the copy you sent me i assumed i was following flew around through these neighborhoods because we just yeah. come off of a scene ending with her and then to find out that actually she'd only gone a little bit up the first location you mentioned the street of wonders and then turns around made me wonder why i was told all the rest so yeah it sounds like cutting that out was a good idea i think and you know i, I would i would think put in any details in terms of streets and neighborhoods and why they are the way they are Putting them in as we encounter them, I think, is better than having an upfront bit of narrative, whether it's right at the top of the story or somewhere a little further along. Like the whole thing with the mercenaries, I think a gradual introduction of them would work really well. Like I liked quite a bit the part where she comes back to try and cheat the ratjack. Pardon me, to uh, try and trade back the rat that she's decided is not so great. Yeah. But she has cheated him, so oh dear, what if he realizes? Mm. And then the point where you know the Rat Jack sees her, he obviously has figured out that she cheated him. And is like, you there, yeah, guards, you know, and I like this bit where you say, you know, flu snorted, the city watch never came to the Isle of Lord and why 10 years ago, maybe, but now, and then, you know, the, the writer's beloved M dash, uh, <laughs> uh, me too, man, uh, a heavy hand clumped down on her shoulder, got her boss, flu looked up, the big man's male coif and the scar checkered face glowering within it described a life in private security. Uh, okay, so yes, no, the guards don't come here, but the people with money have a way of working around that. And i thought yeah "Yeah, that's a fun way to learn that rather than just you know she comes into the neighborhood and then we have description of like those facts like you just laying them out this is coming out of like a scene that's happening and it's also fun because it has that little like she thinks she's good oh no she isn't like that's always a nice little turnaround yeah oh yeah yeah so i I really like that and i thought that was a great way of weaving in world details because it's being woven into the action you know, something I'm trying to get better about myself with describing my characters, for example, is avoiding something that uh, Howard Andrew Jones called in his writing class that I took, the portrait shot. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, tell a little bit about what your character looks like, because they're walking into scene maybe, but don't mention every little detail as they just stood still and posed for a portrait,
1: mm-hmm. not like
0: a short paragraph, just laying it all out. To come back to Flu, I think you did all right with that. Flu considers the squirming rats, and so she's doing something. And we're watching her do something and the, the contrast, uh, or not, yeah, kind of like weaving in like the description of the rats and description of flu, like that all felt together of a piece. It didn't feel like a portrait description to me, but yeah, just that idea in general, right? Like if you ever feel like you're stopping to paint a portrait, ask yourself, is that what I really want to do? And if it, you know, if it is like, well, okay, well, how, what does that do with the rhythm of things? And what does it do with the reader's perception of what's happening? Similar to how, again, to keep coming back to the thing that you've already fixed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, but,
0: but I think that it just helps illustrate, you know, the Street of Wonders paragraph that was kind of stopping to paint a portrait, right? That was stopping to pull out the map of the city, yeah. which can be lovely. But coming off the previous scene, as I say, gave a false impression that we were following flu through all kinds of different places when it turned out she'd gone about, you know, five blocks up uh, and then turned around. So, yeah, and, and I yeah. think
1: I think that paragraph just off the top of my head. I mean, even if I just reordered it, because the idea is that she started near the southern tip of the island, the southern end of the street where this dangerous iron bridge is, and then she walks north a little bit before then changing her mind and coming back and getting herself into trouble. So possibly even just reordering it to match that physical motion may make it make a little more sense. To I have to think about it, but it needs something.
0: I think you're right about reordering things to match the motion of your character. I would suggest instead of having a straight little paragraph of all that stuff, mm-hmm. putting it in as she moves around. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the iron bridge, even, uh, I don't know how grandiose you see it in your mind, but maybe the iron bridge kind of looms over the bit where she is with the rat jack. hmm mm-hmm. You know, the street of wonders flowed out of the iron bridge, looming over, uh, casting a, a long shadow over the rat jack in his stall where Flew was checking out the rats. But yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's funny. We were, we were talking earlier because you're asking, do I outline and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I've grown enough as a person that to me, a first draft now almost feels just like a very, very detailed outline. And mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right that that paragraph is almost like notes in a way that it's like, I've written myself a description that I should then take those notes and use them to set the scene as needed piece by piece. You know, like that paragraph needs to be broken up, the individual details may be worked into the narrative, rather than left as a paragraph of notes.
0: Mm, yeah, I think that would be a good exploration to do. You know, obviously at the end of the day, take or leave anything I say here, right? But that sounds like a good track to explore. And it's funny you should say that about like the first draft feeling like a detailed outline. like. Uh, To come back to screenwriting, you know, there's this thing called uh, a treatment where they can be various lengths, of course. But I've known people who basically write the entire like hour of television, and they just write it like prose instead of screenplay format, and leave out a good chunk of the dialogue. Only the really key lines will be put in, and then other mm. scenes, it's like you know Billy and Bobby argue for a minute, and then finishing with Bobby going, "I'm your real dad," uh, you know. Right, right? <laughs> oh no, Bobby! Yeah. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, like the real kicker, like scene ender lines or whatever, like the lines that really are or they give a strong sense of character, sure, sure yeah. put in the odd bit of dialogue. But otherwise, you just kind of like yeah, tell it almost like prose, and. I have not had balls to try that with pros yet. But I've done that a bit with pilots, and I wonder if it might be an interesting exercise here. So yeah, pretty much treat your first draft kind of like a screenplay treatment in the sense that you're just a super detailed outline and think about it that way. And then and then you know, the next draft is you're just going through and like transforming it in a way from outline to prose. So I sort of subdivided uh, in my notes here, your concerns, but I don't know if we need to. We've, we've talked about a bit of the first one here, right? Like regarding the city of Lorden, uh, this yes. is you in your email. It's got a setup that I think is fun and a little different, so I want to tell the reader about it, but it's not strictly relevant. Right. So I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff there. Unless there's something else you want to talk about with the city, I'm going to move on to your second sub concern about your heroine. So is there anything else to do with the city you'd like to discuss before we move on? No, I, th- I think we've really covered it. So I'm ready to move on. Okay, great. So then yeah, part two B here. Uh, again, I'm reading from your email. As far as flu, uh, our heroine, my concern is that holding back on her backstory creates distance between her and the reader, preventing them from getting attached. In this draft, I've tried to string in some clues about her background, and my thought is that in the scene that's beginning as the draft cuts off, I'll lay out the basics. That way, hopefully, the reader will feel more or less caught up as the adventure really begins." So, I read this knowing nothing but these notes that I'm passing on to uh, listeners, and I liked Flu. I felt invested. And I didn't feel any real distance. I mean, almost right away, I was like, "Okay, this person is down on the outs, uh, and they're trying to buy a rat." I mean, nobody's doing that. But they're having a good day, and they're trying <laughs> to—they're trying to trick this person. Okay, cool. I want to see if they succeed. Yeah, like that got me invested. Like the fact that they're what they're doing has really pulled me in more, I think, than if you'd stopped to uh, lay out the basics.
1: Good. I, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, certainly you know, because it's the same thing, right? It's like, I've got this maybe cool backstory for this character. And like, of course, I'm champing at the bit to try to let it all out, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I I think there is, to some extent, a legitimate concern that like, if you've got a protagonist who's keeping a big secret from the audience, then you're going to have trouble getting the audience to identify with them. But, you know, again, trying to make her a compelling and interesting character that we want to follow while seeding in hints that there's more to her than an Initially meets the eye throughout and hopefully getting to a point where by the time I do possibly do sort of the info dump, say like, okay, here's the character's backstory that the reader is curious enough to actually want to learn it. Right. So, I mean, again, it's not something you can just put up front because people are going to say, I don't care. Right. This is like, let me tell you about my Dungeons and Dragons character. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's never as interesting to anybody else. Um, I really
0: did a great explanation of why they have Charisma 12. It's, <laughs> great, um, <laughs> it's
1: fascinating. Yeah. There's a, uh, a writing guru who I really love named Matt Bird. And if you have never heard of him, Oliver, highly mm-hmm. recommended. The, his book is called Secrets of Story, and he's got another one coming out next year, some point. But he is a screenwriter, mainly. Uh- and so that's kind of where he's coming from. So I think you might jibe with a lot of his ideas. But like, man, I mean, he has just done so much work around what makes a character compelling, what makes a character someone that an audience will get attached to and invested in and that sort of thing. And it, it really opened my mind to how to actually start trying to think about some of this stuff. And one of the things that he says is you should never give a character's backstory in the scene where they're introduced. And so what he says is, you know, you can either give a little bit of backstory before Or the character is actually introduced, in which case, then when we meet the character, there can be something surprising about them that we didn't expect from their backstory. Or we meet the character. And then later, we learn their backstory, which we're surprised by because it wasn't what we expected from the character that we just met. And he says it much more cogently than this and gives good examples and all that kind of stuff.
0: Sure, sure. You're paraphrasing. Yeah,
1: yeah, but, uh, you know, the idea is what I'm going for here is to say, okay, we've got, you know, she's a street urchin. You know, her hair is matted. Her clothes are dingy. She's starving. She's trying to scam some money and get a rat. And okay, we feel like we've seen this character before. So the idea that I'm going for at least is to say, okay, we've seen, you know, street thief, urchin, fantasy character a million times, but hopefully there's a sense that, okay, there's something a little different about flu and the audience will be interested to learn what that is when it actually comes up.
0: Okay. Would it be helpful if I shared with you what my feelings were as I read it? Absolutely. Okay. So, as I say, the first sentence just grabbed me right away because I was like, why are you buying a rat? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, actions, right? I think that grabbed me far more than, as you say, if, if there'd been like an info dump at the, the top. And honestly, like they happen in, in even my, my absolute favorite sword and sorcery short stories. So like the info dump is not the devil, but I, again, I think it's one of those things where like, you know, aim for the moon and uh, shoot for, with it shoot for the moon? And even if, if you fail, you'll land amongst the stars. Yeah. Uh, you know, motivational poster. Written by poster. someone who
1: does not know astronomy at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you take that back. That motivational poster I remember from my great ten English class <laughs> means a lot to me, but I, weirdly it has stuck in my damn head. And I think in yeah. a sense, it's kind of the thing here where it's like you to completely and utterly never explain anything is would be kind of bananas unto itself. Although if you pull it off and you still make a great story, you know, amazing gold star. I think what this is, I would say fight the urge to have an info dump anywhere Okay, and give as little as you can, as late as you can. And in terms of this idea of a character having a secret, and then therefore that creates a distance that we don't, you know, it makes it hard for us to relate to them. To me, it's like that secret can be almost like the filling of like uh, of a candy, you know, where we're not at the like chocolate or gum or whatever at the center. And so that's not what we're gonna connect with because it's hidden, but we can still very much enjoy the candy coating, right? Mm-hmm. The candy coating can be what draws them in, and by which I mean to follow this metaphor, which is hopefully won't get too tortured, is the candy coating here is she's buying a rat, god damn it, and she's <laughs> she's buying a rat, she's picky about which rat she gets, making me wonder what's the hierarchy here. She pulls out, and by the way, I thought this was a good way of uh, doing what you're trying to do here, get some world information in, uh, again, through actions, not through you know dialogue dumps or whatever. I like the fact that the currency seems to be chess pieces. Yeah. Right? This whole thing where she pulled, and, and you don't say like, you know, uh, the currency became chess pieces 10 years ago when the chess guys took over town. <laughs> you know, it was weird. Anyway, anyway moving on. No, you just have her other hand pulled a small gleaming rook from within her jacket. And I really found that intriguing, especially, uh, and then the fact that you actually have the cardinal distinctions in the next sentence is kind of fun when I think about bishops and chess. A, I just thought it was a cool world detail, but again, B, like it's a thing of her like pulling like a coin that seems to be beyond her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's intriguing. Then I was like, oh, is she... Did she steal it, which we find out later she did? But for a little bit I was kind of like, oh, is she like a fallen noble? And this is her last big coin that she has and she's gotta use it carefully. Like I was trying to figure her out and I was enjoying trying to figure her out as I was reading through this, and that engaged me. As far as you know, whether I wanna, you know, I like flu or whether or I want to have a beer with flu. Well, I'm kind of rooting for her by default to begin with because she's the protagonist and that's what we do, right? And we've all heard, I think, especially if you spend too much time online, the idea of protagonist brain where people in life start to feel like they're the center of the universe because we all watch so many stories where the protagonist is the center. And then what they're doing must be good because they're the main protagonist coming back to memories of Breaking Bad and how so many people got mad at Walter White's wife for, you know, harshing his adventures and it's like <laughs> she's discovering she's married to a man who's putting her in constant jeopardy <laughs> and her son calls constant jeopardy but she's getting in the way of the protagonist like that just illustrates the strength of what i'm talking about where blue being the protagonist right away i'm kind of like all right what's the deal here you know you hook me with the rat buying thing and then i'm following a little further like every everything she does as long as it's interesting and it is i find in this draft you sent me that engages me so if she has a big deep, dark secret that we maybe don't even learn this story. Maybe it's just hinted at and in the sequel, we're going to get it. You know, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Unless that secret uh, or secrets are, are desperately needed to, you know, satisfy a payoff or achieve some other goal, right? That you've got, like if the secret is the thing, sure. But, you know, I still don't know the name of Conan's mom and dad. Yeah, yeah. I still don't know exactly why he left In Howard's stories, if I remember correctly. He just kind of occasionally says like, well, he came south because, you know, he wanted to plunder and and get, you know, the rewards of civilization that were not up north. But we never get like a detailed breakdown of that. And here we are still talking about him how many decades later. I think less is more always with this stuff and revealing each detail as late as you can, preferably through action like I say, having that rook be part of this whole fiddle faddle that she's pulling, as opposed to just a brief discussion of coinage and why it's just So, Does
1: that help? Yeah, and I I find that very useful because, you know, this was an unanswered question for me. The question is always I know what I'm going for, but is it working? You know, and and Mm -hmm. it's Satisfying uh, and gratifying to have you basically say back to me that what I was trying to do came across because that's exactly the goal, right? Mm-hmm. Is to say, okay, we don't need a bunch of backstory right up front. But if she's a person who's doing something interesting, who seems to have interesting uh, opinions on the world or an interesting view of the world, you know, hopefully that'll be enough. And I had thought maybe, like I said, in this next scene that I'm about to write, that maybe, okay, I can give enough of the backstory that then we're kind of caught up with her, quote unquote. But yeah, maybe not. I mean, if it's certainly I was looking at it as I, I can see a way to use this scene to deliver that information, but I don't think I have to for the story. So maybe I'll try it first, not doing that and see if it works.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can always make like, do you write in Word or Scrivener or what do you like to use? I use Scrivener, yeah. There you go. So Scrivener, I mean, yeah, it's it's very easy to just like put a note in, you know, of like write the short sentence, but then put up the paragraph of like, all the details I'm thinking about jamming in, you -hmm. know, Uh, yeah, just put it on the side and and know that you can always go back and, and insert it later. I do find that by and large you can take anything too far. And I have been given notes on my own work where they're like, I can see you were trying not to drown us in detail, but I don't know what's happening in this part. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah.
1: That's the, that's yeah. the other fear, right? Is that people are just left adrift and have no idea what's going on.
0: Absolutely. But at least in my experience as a reader and as a writer, that happens way less mm-hmm. than people just being drowned in detail. And even if they're like, okay with it, then I guess all right, you know, they might still enjoy it more if there were for even fewer details. And so I won't say never, but by and large, I have tended to be fine with it if I've cut details and then I come to the draft later and maybe I don't remember they were there. That's how little they were needed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, this is a first draft, so okay. you're still figuring it out, of course. But I definitely think as an exercise in any given scene, see how you can convey information about character and location through actions and only giving things as they are made relevant by those actions. Yep. yep. And then see how it feels. That would be my sort of big note to your main concerns here.
1: Yeah, that totally totally makes sense to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, by all means, question me or question what I'm saying, because maybe I need to go deeper myself. Maybe I need to add a little more detail. <laughs> oh, irony, irony. But I th- I think this has gone pretty well. I have another little tiny notes, bits and pieces here and there that I'm going to send you a PDF with like little post-its on it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. For those. So you can go through those at your own leisure and not feel like you got to wait for me to put this episode out, which... I'm not sure (laughs) it honestly might be as late as February. So, you know, for your purposes, certainly I, I will send you that email with those little notes and stuff. And yeah, I'll just say that I find the story very fun and very intriguing. I'm into flu. I want to know what's going on with her. I want to see where this is going. And yeah, but one thing one more note I'll put in here because this is also something to keep in mind, the world building and, and the character intrigue and all that. Because it's this is I, you know, third person over Mo's uh pardon me, <laughs> my novel. <laughs> wow. Good work, Oliver. <laughs> this is third person over the shoulder of Flu's yeah. uh life. You know, you can get that through the description. Like I like the part where she's looking at her rat after she's changed her mind and being like, well, you know, it's uh it's silvery. Sheen reminded one of a rapier's blade, or at least it had when she was buying it. Now it looked more like the belly of some dead-eyed river fish. Well, it, the rat size was noble, regal, even, or perhaps just corpulent. Like the going back and forth there, that told me more of value about her than if you had just been like, you know, she's sometimes indecisive about rats. Ever since she was a kid, and she had to choose the perfect rat, or her dad would hit her. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess it comes back to the oldest advice in the book, right? You're showing me not yeah, telling. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, there you go, right? Well, okay. Well, now I've ended on the the absolute pinnacle of hokey writing advice. Uh, I think you know we're 55 minutes here. It feels good to me unless there's anything furthermore you'd like to briefly discuss.
1: Gosh, no, I don't I don't think so. I mean, you've certainly addressed the two main concerns that I had in ways that I frankly found very useful. So I feel like I'm going forward knowing what I need to tweak in this draft and having a better idea of what I need to write next. So honestly, Oliver, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate the time and your effort and to helping me.
0: No, cheers. It's like I said, it's just something I really enjoy doing. And then thank you for sharing your story and being comfortable sharing it publicly, because that ain't easy for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I I really
1: appreciate it. Got to learn to let go, man.
0: I seem to have beaten all the shame out of myself somehow. Well, not beaten. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, careful with your metaphors or whatever there, buddy. But yeah, I seem to have wrung out all my shame a long time ago. Thank goodness. That seems to come in handy for doing this kind of thing. But you can't expect that of everybody. So yeah, again, I really appreciate that. All right. Well, it was lovely talking to you. And I guess I'll see you on the Discord, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. Take care. So I'm writing a novel. Features original music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to soimwritinganovel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3, I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and uh, checking out Patreon.com/slash. So I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a whole bonus podcast called "So I Wrote a Novel," where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Nathaniel, and I'll see you soon.